Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock number 62 for Saturday, October 24th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer Ken Gagney. I am Captain Sabriel Maston. It's uh, good to be back. It's weird to have so much Star Trek to talk about again. I know, it's been only a week since our last show, which is what we usually do, but it's been hit or miss as Star Trek comes in a burst and then goes offline and then comes in a burst and goes offline. <laughs> but this week we're here to talk about Discovery Season 3, Episode 2, Far From Home, and we're very honored to have a guest join us to discuss this episode. Please welcome First Officer Tiffany Bridge. Hello, Tiffany. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. So, Tiffany, I understand that you are the First Officer of a transport ship. Is that correct? Yes. I like to, uh, I like to keep it kind of low-key. <laughs> and are you transporting like space refugees, space drugs? What's going on? Uh, you know, a little of both. I think uh, space refugees <laughs> primarily. Uh, space refugees, um, a, a lot of uh, shuttling people back and forth between star bases, you know. Tribbles. Tr- so many tribbles. But they're for <laughs> personal problems. So that's okay. Well, right. you know, we had the exterminator out last week, and uh, oh. I don't think they did. They were very thorough about it. Oh my gosh, that's the trouble with tribbles. They just get exterminated too easily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get, in Klingons, they're going to have to have like, a huge service for this. Like, if like you can get your exterminator for roaches here, like, there you can get it for tribbles. Right? Like, once the Klingons joined the Federation, you couldn't just have a tribble infestation on your ship <laughs> and let it go because they're cute, right? Like, it's, it became like a diplomatic thing. I mean, long, long term, the great Klingon tribble war was good for the Klingon economy. That's true. Okay, I know. Super quick aside, because it's related. Um, there was a start a uh, reference to um, one of the Klingons in the original series, or no, in the, the DS9 episode when they went back in time. Um, and one of them basically made a offhand comment about how he wished he had a statue, or he, he will have a statue of Kirk's head in one hand and a triple in the other. And in the Star Trek card game, they actually made this statue. Uh, so you could <laughs> alter, the, alter the Kirk, kill Kirk and alter the timeline. And they made the statue as a picture for that card. And I loved it. Amazing. <laughs> but we're here to talk about an episode of Star Trek Discovery. And before that, we're here to scrutinize our new member, Tiffany. So how long have you been a Trekkie? So I started watching um, Trek reruns, like the original series reruns with my dad when I was a kid. So that was, like, I was little. Um, but I would say that, I mean, I enjoyed that a lot. But I would say, you know how, like, on, you know, Doctor Who, people talk about how they have, like, their doctor? Like, mm-hmm. my Trek is TNG. <laughs> okay. Um, so that was, because that... TNG premiered when I was, I don't know, in third grade or so. And, um, and so went through, you know, for seven years, right? So like up until I was in high school. And so it was, that was like kind of my formative, like prime TV watching years. The ones that came after that, like I was getting into like high school and college and didn't have as much time to watch. So for me, like TNG is kind of like, to me, that's like canonical Trek. Is that also your favorite Trek? Um, I would say it's the Trek that is my favorite right now, um, where I am right now. Cause it's, you know, it's 2020. What I really want to watch is, um, shows about like good people doing their best. Right. And, um, TNG is like this extremely soothing, like workplace place drama right now. 
So I'm really enjoying like a rewatch of it right now. And I understand you are raising your child to be a Trekkie as well. I am. We have uh, we have started with with TNG for him as well because we want to like we want to turn on something that we can all watch together and uh, TNG being suitable for the broadcast standards and practices of the late 80s and early 90s <laughs> is uh, is not too advanced for my 7-year-old. So we've had a good time with that. Although we got a hint that maybe they're reining in Discovery a bit because Saru did cut off Tilly this week before she could swear. Well, you know, I uh, I have a friend who who works at CBS actually in Trek promotion, and when productions all had to shut down for for COVID, one of the things she pointed out was like at some point we're going to run out of episodes, and then the only thing we're going to be able to put on CBS is like disco and reruns. And so I think they are now starting to think about like disco having like a second life on broadcast television. And so, yeah, Saru cut uh, cut Tilly off, and I was disappointed because I was ready to hear it. But uh, <sighs> but you, it, it's a lot easier if you don't have to edit that stuff out later, right? So um, so I can see them trying to like clean it up a little bit and make it more suitable for broadcast TV. It's true. When you hear Samuel L. Jackson talking about Monday to Friday planes with monkey fighting snakes, it's just not the same. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So what have you thought of Discovery so far? I mean, I am loving this. I think this has been a really great sort of return to the Trek universe. Um, I think, you know, there was a lot of controversy about it when it when it started. And people were, there was a lot of, um, of people like complaining in the first season, like, oh, this isn't Trek. It's not optimistic and humanistic like Trek is. And I'm like, what show are you even watching? Right. Um, I think that in some ways this is the most optimistic Trek Um and uh, and I think um, I'm just having a great time, like like digging in with this ensemble. I'm really enjoying um, the the diversity of this trek, and um, and I love now in season three how they're like jumping it well for far forward in the timeline, so that it's not like constrained by the existing canon, which I think was a real challenge for it the first two seasons, right? Like you can't you can't exist immediately before the Enterprise without everybody wondering like where's the Enterprise right now? What are they doing? And then in, in season two they like leaned into that, and then like they just gave you the Enterprise, um, and so which was fun, but Discovery deserves to be its own thing. And I think now that it's like a thousand years in the future, and there's not really even um, as we've discovered like a, a federation to speak of anymore. I think um, they'll really, they'll really get to kind of spread their wings and, and expand a bit. That's one thing people have always said about Trek is that it's about going forward. And I remember that complaint being made when enterprise first aired, which is why are we going backward? That's not what Star Trek is about. Well, discovery is really taking that to the extreme. I'm curious though, what you meant about discovery being the most optimistic of the Treks. So, you know, when we see, like for example, in TNG, and TNG is always the example that I go back to, right? Like it's you have this very like kind of settled and established federation, right? And you see like a lot of bureaucracy in the in the federation, and you start to see it as kind of like there's like a political power structure in it, and um, and then you you jump back to Discovery and you have a, like a younger Federation, a scrappier Federation, a Federation that's still at war with the Klingons um, and trying to figure out how to live its values while in the middle of this, like this existential threat. So there's that. And, and then you have, you know, Michael Burnham who, who makes a terrible choice in the first episode, right. And pays the price for it. And then has to spend basically the rest of the season trying to, forgive herself for that and make it up to herself that that was the choice that she's made. 
And now here they are kind of jumped forward a thousand years in the future and there's no federation and they have to figure out like, like what do those values mean? And I think like, I just feel like I don't recall any, um, I don't recall any Trek character who articulates at, at an, an emotional level, like what the Federation means the way that Michael Burnham does. Right. Like not even Picard, like Picard, Picard was a true believer, but um, Burnham just really seems like she just craves and needs the Federation to be what she believes it to be. And, um, and for people to be what they're capable of. And I think that, um, so I think that, that I feel that the most like, intensely from this track versus any of the others in some ways it was very easy for picard to be a true believer whereas burnham is more challenged by it and yet still is a believer right and i think like something that i think that was very interesting like not to like diverge too much but in that season of picard that we got i really enjoyed the way they sort of challenged picard on that that it was you know it was very easy for you to be um, to hold to these Federation values while you got to go like back up onto your fully automated luxury space communism starship and fly away. Right. Like you were very comfortable. Um, and, but then like in the, in that season, they really confronted him with all of the people who did not get to enjoy the protection of the Federation the way he did and, um, and really challenge his values that way. And I loved, I loved the deconstruction and I loved watching this beloved character have to confront those truths um, and I think, you know, we got a little bit of that in this, ep- this week's episode of Discovery as well. Like, what do you do when you have these Federation values, but you're con- confronted with the scarcity and desperation and deprivation that the Federation had eliminated? Bree, do you have any questions for our guests? No, I was just uh, taking all that in. That was incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, why don't we talk about not just the scarcity of this episode, but the episode in general? Uh, Tiffany, you gave us some. Well, actually, we should. We always offer a TLDR. Has anybody prepared one, or shall I wing it? I did not. Okay. Oh, I think you should go. <laughs> the TLDR is just like how Michael Burnham crash lands on a planet after coming out of the wormhole last week. So does the Discovery. It's a different planet, and they are uh, in need of repair. So Tilly and Saru walk over to a space saloon to get the uh, materials that they need. And some bad guy comes in, shoots the place up because he is... Uh, basically exploiting them for whatever few resources they have because they're stranded there because they can't leave the planet. Uh, but then Georgiou comes in, saves the day, they get the parts they need, they go back to the ship, they start to save it, and then Michael Burnham shows up and saves them and says that she's been waiting for them for a year. The end. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. You can tell that a year has passed because she has box braids now. <laughs> yeah. well, you know, one of the things I meant to Google going into this podcast episode, and which I forgot, was the rate at which human hair grows because that seems like a lot more than a year's worth of growth. Oh, I think it was. I think she's definitely, um, there's definitely been some enhancement there because I can tell you that I have uh, not cut my hair now in over a year and I did not grow that much hair in that time. <laughs> same, same. So. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's the future. They have, they can build things on a mold. What was it? Uh, moldable or uh, matter? Pro- programmable or, uh, matter. Programmable yeah, matter. Yeah. You can, yeah. Probably programmable hair do hair Why growth not? yeah we have really excellent like hair growth vitamins as well yeah. <laughs> she's not only the president she's also a client <laughs> but let's not get too tied up in the minutia we will come back to the end of the episode uh, tiffany you gave us some thoughts overall about how 
Starfleet interacts with the scarcity of this episode. What did you think of the episode in general? I mean, I loved it. I loved the way that they like really leaned into kind of the Western tropes. Um, you know, the, that thing where they like kind of push through the saloon doors and everybody kind of reaches for the weapon. And just all of those, like all of those tropes were very familiar. And it was really fun to see them in this setting because I think, um, you know, we kind of forget sometimes that the original pitch for the original Star Trek was wagon train to the stars. So it was nice to see that little, little shout out back to the origins of Trek. Um, I, uh, I loved it. And I loved, um, you know, on that, the topic of like Federation values, I loved this, like this thing where Saru is standing there trying to talk his way out of this situation with people who are not there to talk. And then, you know, you see some, a figure come tumbling through the door, having been captured and you realize it's Giorgio. And like, I literally shouted in my house, Oh no, you messed up now. (laughs) Because you know, like once Giorgio shows up, she's just going to lay waste. Right to uh to the bad guys and she did which was extremely satisfying but then also like the the relationship between saru and Giorgio, like i just can't wait to see more of that (laughs) because he loathes her he loathes her and and rightly so right like the the feeling is mutual and i just can't wait to like watch them just continue to like sneer at each other for the entire season but think about how confusing that must be for saru because our universe is Giorgio is somebody he absolutely admired and idolized and to see her face every day and know that this is somebody he has to now stand up to and keep an eye on must be on some level very confusing right and this is someone who like literally eight members of his species Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh huh. Like consider, like considers him a delicacy. Would still eat him if given half the chance. I forgot. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, I right? was thinking while watching this, uh, like, or even last week, Discovery has gone from one situation to the next situation to the next situation, all in rapid fire succession. They have not had any time, virtually no time, uh, to just chill. Like they did between uh, getting their medals in the first season to going to uh, find Enterprise. And that's about it. That's true, because this is a surreal show. Every episode picks up where the last one left off, and that continues from season to season. I don't know if many other surreal TV shows do that. I I don't watch that many, but you're right. It's just relentless. Yeah, I think um, I think well, I think that's partially kind of where TV is right now. Like I watch I watch a fair number of serial shows, and I think that is kind of a pretty normal thing. But um, but yeah, I, I do note that there's never like, like on TNG, there's always like, oh, well, this week we're doing a survey of this uninhabited planet. And then they like encounter whatever like the alien of the week is. Um, but there's never just like, oh, we're just going to go over here and explore this part of the of the the sector, like this galaxy over here and um, and like do some science. Like they're a science vessel. They never get to do any science. <laughs> well, that's one of the things that the novels create the opportunity for is with every episode of TNG taking place at some indeterminate time after the previous episode, anything can happen in the middle. And that's where the novels come in. Whereas Discovery novels, I've read a couple and I'm trying to figure out when did they find time for this? Right. <laughs> huh. It's AU fanfic. I did pretty much. I did like the Western tropes, but I thought the one aspect that was a little unbelievable was the spurs. Why do they need spurs in the future? Because I didn't. I didn't see any mounts. Oh, yeah. I too questioned that. Well, we don't know their lives. We only saw a very small piecemeal. Who knows how much they ha- they uh, walk th- walk or you know have mounts somewhere on their ship? Maybe even like a, like a firefly. It's true, but like we did see the ship pull into dock, so maybe there are 
maybe like in the latest Star Wars movie, they keep mounts so that if they need to do a land assault on a starship, they can do that. <laughs> but uh, or they're in they're in fashion right now. Yeah, I was gonna say it could just be like an affectation. They just want they want you to hear them coming. Oh yeah, no, it's a very good way just to hear. Let people hear you're coming is hearing that little metal. Okay. And you're like, oh uh, crap, it's Zara. I find that believable. There was a point in college where I had a broken leg and I was walking with a cane. And then a few months later, I saw somebody else walking with a cane. I said, oh my God, are you okay? And he said, oh, I just think it looks cool. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I was I was not using a cane because it was cool. I was wearing using a cane because I had to. And if I didn't have to, I wouldn't. And here you are misappropriating it. Stop that. <laughs> but yeah it, the fact is some people do these things because they look cool and if spurs fall in that category then fine yeah i remember noting that like what what does this guy need spurs for <laughs> but and you know maybe it's maybe it's for like maximum utility like when kicking someone when they're down i don't know i mean, I mean you can't be a space cowboy without spurs <laughs> <laughs> or or maybe it's for other purposes which brings up a question we all had which was Georgiou and Linus, like she was flirting with him, especially about his visible spectrum. And then we don't see him again. And we have some theories about what that was all about. Uh, Brie, what are, what was yours? Oh, no, it was, she was just flirting with him to dump him on her workload. That's it. So she was just saying, hey, I've been assigned to do this. Why don't you do it for me instead? Yeah, just in her own way. <laughs> yeah. She wanted I mean, to get out of the ship. What was the thing was about the sense. visible spectrum, though? Just flirting, huh? Well, or will I mean, or it'll come back later. But um, when that when that crew member suddenly like has to step in and save the day in a very specific way, <laughs> right? Because like I feel like I, I've stopped assuming that there are any throwaway lines in anything. Mm. So, um, and you know, related to that, like we're talking about like a society that is completely depleted of dilithium, right? Well, meanwhile, Tilly has a relationship with the queen of that planet where they invented like d- d- mm-hmm. dilithium recrystallization. Like, is that going to come up this mu- uh, this season at all? Oh, interesting. I like your theory about the line about Linus being relevant later. It's sort of like Chekhov's visible spectrum. If it's mentioned in the yeah. first <laughs> act, it must be used in the <laughs> third Chekhov's- act. Right, like you know, he'll show up in uh, in like three episodes, and there will be some critical problem that could only be solved by Jordy's visor or this guy's visible spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> well, that didn't work out in Lower Decks. They're like, we need somebody who can exist in the vacuum of space. Peanut Hamper, you'll do it, and she's like, nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Also, I think we neglected to mention this is going back a couple episodes of Transporter Lock. Now, what a great name, Peanut Hamper is. <laughs> let's, you know, let's just acknowledge that and move on. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know, Linus was not the only secondary crew member we got to see this month. I saw in our notes that we got to learn a little bit more about other members of the crew as well. Giorgio. I love Giorgio. Uh, just just her little comments here. It's like she just loves hopping from universe to universe. She was talking to Commander Nan and uh, Nan... Uh, or she made a comment to her, like, you could have stayed where you were, you know, in your time, you know, basically in your timeline. And, uh, but she's like, nah, for me, I like going from universe to universe. And she has basically no time span in his travel at all. And she's just popping here and there. And she just loves the chaos of it. And she mentions, uh, sh- if she would have stuck behind, she would have been made lead of section 31 and bureaucracy is where fun goes to die. 
I'm trying to figure out what that statement means for the Section 31 spinoff show she's supposed to be in. She does not want to be a leader, so she's probably just going to be on away missions always. However, that show is supposed to pan out. If it's ever going to pan out, we still have no new information as of this recording. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. (laughs) But she does clearly care for Michael. I mean, even though she says it was a crappy decision of Nan to stay aboard the Discovery when she could have stayed on the Enterprise, as Nan points out, you're here too. And Georgiou is very eager to get the communications array up and running so that they can find Burnham. So even though she is Section 31 and the evil empress of another universe, we continue to see evidence that whatever universe Burnham exists in, Georgiou really cares for her. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. And I, I think it's it's such an interesting like shade to the to the. Giorgio character who is in my opinion like nature's perfect predator right like she just figures out how to how to make it work for her no matter where she is she's extremely adaptable but like burnham is always going to be this like tether for her and i thought that was really i think that's very interesting and i'll be interested to see how that works out um how that works out for her later because i feel like that's going to be another one of those things that comes back at a key moment yeah, so, I mean, there has to be more to her character for this season than just want to get Michael back because we got Michael back already. Like, oh, her story's done. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, there's going to be more. Uh, in the saloon, I also loved when the standoff what she's having with Saru. He's like, put down your weapon. And she's like, I like my weapon. Uh, I just got a kick out of that. She took a big chance she- allowing herself to get shot by that bad guy. Because as we saw what he did to Cal, that weapon with sustained burst is fatal. And George was able to sustain multiple minor hits, but there was no reason why the bad guy didn't just gun him, gun her down like he did Cal. Uh, Cal. No, there wasn't. Uh, but apparently she just, apparently something in her just knows how uh, being evil works. <laughs> She's like, nah, this guy's not going to do, he's going to make an example of me. And for her, it's foreplay. Yeah. I felt like this was like a predator meeting a bigger predator. <laughs> And yeah. suddenly becoming like realizing that he's become the prey and like just doing that recalculation. I think we did learn that in, in the first season, right? That that Giorgio's um, shall we call it pain tolerance is not so much a tolerance as it is, like you said, foreplay. <laughs> like she, like I think that's. I mean, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, you probably have have similar devices like for fun. Oh, <laughs> like you just keep around for fun, like the, the tantalus oh, yeah. booth. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but I think that was kind of like the like he was. I think I think Zara was so like shocked that she was not um, ag- like agonized by it that she w- that she withstood the blast. That I think he just wasn't really prepared to like pull out a projectile weapon and shoot mm-hmm. her. Uh, speaking of Zara, well, he's coming back. Uh, I recognize him as a very evil person from uh, the show Vikings. He he knows how to play bad guys. Besides the fact that they didn't kill him, uh, he's coming back. But even he said that he wouldn't last a night out on that planet with the parasitic ice. So how is he going to get out yeah. of that? That's TV villains <laughs> for you. You don't see him die, so that means they're yeah. coming back. If you don't see them die, they're not dead. So, so yep. maybe he's like this season's Harry Mud, just keeps popping up. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Also in the saloon was Saru and Tilly. You know, they walked there together. And when he first said, Tilly, you're coming with me, Georgiou said, her? And then even Nan said, her? And Nan was like, I'm sorry. (laughs) But even though I didn't say it, I was thinking it too. I was like, of the three people you have here, 
Nan is the one best equipped to handle unknown situations and is the one that you trust. She's the only one at that intersection. And yet you chose Tilly. And I am really glad that even she had the question. On their walk, she said, why me, sir? And Saru said, because you make a wonderful first impression. I was like, oh, that that's true. This isn't just an unknown situation. This is also first contact. And that's something that Saru was taking into account. He he really is a good captain. Yes. And also, uh, who else would go toe-to-toe with Giorgio if it wasn't Nan? What do you mean? No one. What do you mean? No, one. no I mean, if Nan was basically in charge when Saru was gone. Right. If Nan was gone and Saru was gone, mm-hmm. who's next in line? And who's going to actually go toe-to-toe with Giorgio who thinks she's in charge? That's a good point. I don't know who yeah, would be next yeah. in line after that. But I love that Nan is here because I completely forgot about her except for the episode where Arium died. That's the only like concrete memory I have of her. I know she showed up elsewhere, but I, I didn't expect to see her in the 31st century. And yet here she is. And it's great to have her back. Yeah, I'm hoping that we get more... Um like more of the crew this season like we've got they started to they've started to give us some of that um you know now they've kind of established the leads and everything but i uh i really love um getting to know the other members of the crew like just like i'm I'm here for anything about like kayla detmer so mm-hmm. um yeah like just bring me bring me all of the stories of like the the less central crew, uh, crew members yeah detmer's always been one of my favorite characters and i'm really concerned about her like i'm i'm just genuinely worried like what is going on with her this episode she she's not well uh yeah she's one of my favorites too i mean we both have side shapes (laughs) so there's that but um honestly i think they didn't handle her injury well here i am not invested yet like I, i worry about the character but they did not seem interested in giving clues or breadcrumbs or at least ones that were interesting enough to pick up on uh, to what's going on. The only thing I had maybe is when she's walking away from sick bay, they show her walking into a dark corridor. Uh, like one person walks by her, but she's just the way she's walking in that scene, the way it was filmed. She just basically looks like she's walking alone. That's the only thing I have maybe. Otherwise, like it just didn't give me enough to be invested yet. Yeah. I can't tell if yeah, it's yeah. a physical injury because she went to sick bay and she got a clean bill of health. And I don't know if it's PTSD, because if so, it seemed to come on pretty fast when they crash landed on the planet. Maybe that's an experience she's gone through before. Maybe she was responsible for a bad landing previously, and she's thinking about the people that she lost. I have no idea. Yeah, I think we'll probably, that's another thing that I think we'll we'll see later. Because there was, like, there was so much happening in this episode that I feel like anything that they took time to show you at all is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Because, like, this was a pretty packed episode. Um, and there were a lot of things that kind of had to get short shrift. So I feel like the fact that they took a they took the time to show us Detmer being not right, like that's going to come back. Yeah. Like my thought was being in Derby, I, I thought concussion, but it would be when she got signed off medically, and I mean, I, I, they've just shown like, oh, you have a concussion very easily. So I think it's something more than that, just based on Star Trek history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, it's, yeah, it, yeah, I agree. It seems to go beyond the physical. And it's maybe, have we seen that the Discovery has any sort of a ship's counselor? No, we didn't add them to the, we got space hotels in TNG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know that she has <clears throat> anybody to talk to. One, there was, oh, oh what? wait. Uh, com- uh, the Admiral uh, Cornwell in Discovery, she was a psychologist. 
Right, but psychiatry. Right, right. That's what the no, I, I acknowledge that psychology and psychiatry exist in Starfleet. I just, but she was an admiral, and we haven't seen any such permanent fixture on the Discovery manifest. Well, I mean, I think there was. There's some theories floating around that, uh, well, you know, with the intersection of Leland having been on Discovery, and they're like still cleaning up his remains. Right, super gross. Um, and Detmer being not quite right. There's some theory that maybe control has infected Detmer. And maybe they have not actually escaped control after all. I read that as well. Like, why would they bring Leland's body into the future when the goal of going to the future was to get away from him? And they even mentioned to Georgiou, you have some Leland on your shoes. But but oh, if, they were, if they were to do again this season to Detmer, what they did last season to Arium, I would be very disappointed. That would be disappointing. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be that. But there was two things that they really hammered down in this episode. And that was one, Jet's back hurts. Uh, like They kept bringing that up over and over and over again. And two, Leyland got all over. Yeah. Uh, even in the recap, they made sure to show him dying. And then here, they, here are his guts, just like in Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yeah, one of the reasons I tend to avoid the opening recap is because they only show you the parts that are going to be relevant to this episode and in that sense they're a bit of a spoiler so i can see why they wanted to give context to comments like you have some leland on your shoes or why that guy whose name i've already forgotten was scraping him up out of the mycelium chamber but did they really need to show that in the recap just for those two relatively minor points or to sabriel's point is it more important than that i don't know it's hard to say because, I mean, this is, in in some ways, this is really like a two-part season premiere, right? Because last week we got an episode that was just Burnham. And this week is the episode that's almost exclusively Discovery. So in some ways, we're still kind of reminding everybody what happened last season if you haven't rewatched it recently. That's true. So I, I think there's a little bit of that as well. Like, you have to remember, like, exactly how did they get into this situation? That's true. I mean, and to a degree, you could almost watch the first two episodes in either order and you end up in the same place. Right. I saw some people online suggesting watching on backwards on your first viewing. Obviously we can't do that, but uh, might make things interesting or different, but still end up the same way. Yeah. I mean, you want to go and the episodes are shown in chronological order, but I suspect we're going to nonetheless continue to have some degree of flashback as we see what Burnham has been up to over the last year. Well, plus, we don't have part two of part one. Uh, the hope that you bring, part one. I was looking at the list of episodes for this season, and I don't see a part two. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that was a part one. It's a, it was in the title. No, I agree it was in the title, but... No, 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 I, yeah. But I don't, uh, so I don't yeah. see an episode named part two. So what are they playing at? I don't know. I mean, it has more meaning to it. Maybe... It's it's breaking the counter like we're used to part one, part two. So it must have some other meaning. I don't know. Or maybe, I mean, one review I read online referred to the unwritten part two. So maybe there will be a part two at some point. I don't know. I, I don't think they're just going to put part one in there and leave it like that, though. Hmm. So let's talk about, actually, Burnham. And since we're on that topic, I was not at all surprised that the ship that showed up was hers. But I was surprised it had been only a year because, as they said last week, you know, Discovery could show up tomorrow or a thousand years from now. And that's a pretty wide range. And I, I, for some reason, thought that Burnham might be waiting five years for Discovery to show up. One year really 
isn't all that long. I mean, it's long when you don't know when Discovery is going to show up, but if Burnham had been told, for example, not that she was, oh, Discovery will be here a year from now, you just have to wait, I'd be like, I can wait a year. That's not bad. Well, I think it's long enough to establish, like, to let Burnham kind of establish, like, a base in this timeline, right? Like, she clearly was able to show up in a ship to rescue them. So she she didn't get thrown over by book that we know of, right? Um, and so she's she's been there long enough that she has like familiarity with the world, so that they're not all stumbling around like kind of blind into these kind of confrontations like they would otherwise have been, which is good because like two episodes of that was enough. And you know, in a in a what is it a ten or thirteen episode season, we don't really need more than two episodes of that. So she's been there long enough that she kind of gets the gist and is familiar with it, and can kind of act as Discovery's guide through the um, what are we up now, like the thirty third century or whatever it is. Mm. Um, but she's not so entrenched and so familiar with it that she has been able to like reconstitute the federation purely through the force of her will right like she's not that entrenched so i think like a year is is probably about the right amount of time i agree that it's helpful for discovery to have somebody aboard who knows what they're doing and where and what's more important when they are and that person being mert burnham makes a lot of sense because if they had to bring aboard somebody unknown to them like book solely to serve as a guide I would be suspicious and I would wait for that person to lead them into a trap, which is exactly what book did to Burnham last week. So we got that out of the way, at least. Right. Hmm. And, you know, this way we, they all get to meet uh, grudge. So <laughs> grudge cat. Woo. Yeah, exactly. Who is a queen. So, so big she could feed a planet. <laughs> Let me see. What else are we talking about this week? Uh, Oh, you know, so Burnham discovered last week that there is no Federation as we know it. It still exists in some minor pocket capacity. And this week we heard uh, Zaret talk about the Vidrash, which is how the Federation was referred to in the Short Trek episode Calypso. So this is the very first time we've heard that phrase, Vidrash, in Discovery as opposed to Short Treks, which means we are in or leading to the timeline of Calypso. This is one of the most concrete connections we have had yet between that episode and discovery. Excellent. I've been waiting for that. (laughs) Seriously. Like I, like I loved that short so much and I was like desperately confused about like what was happening, but in that, like, please just like, don't explain it to me too fast kind of way. Um, So I'm, I'm ready. Like my body is ready. Please. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> please bring me the connection to that short trek. They were really playing the long game when they made that short trek because that came out a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so as uh, Zara mentions the pigeon, I mean, that's just basically pigeon version of Federation. Uh, now that we could get that confirmed. We, we kind of suspected that. Now we get it confirmed. And I mean, that lingo starts staying along for a, around for a long time. Did we see that language in Calypso? Uh, pigeon is just uh, a real thing. Uh, how to describe it? It's a group of like syllables and consonants to try to be, basically trying to make a common that people of different cultures, like who speak different cultures, could try to speak to each other at least get some basic semblance. It's a real thing. It's just another way to say like 
I mean, Sir calls common tongue English basically for us, or whoever, you know, whatever they're broadcasting this episode in. But um, pigeon is just another short form of like a common common. I don't know how to describe it. It's a real term used in language. No, I, I get that. It's an adjective. Yeah. It refers to a, a pigeon language. But so there is no canonical pigeon. Uh, it can be one of many different things, like a right. pigeon English, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't recognize the pigeon that was used in this episode. Was it based on gotcha. English? Oh, that I don't have knowledge on. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sure either. Yeah, I didn't uh, recognize it. Hmm. And I mean, it all went by so quickly. Yeah. But we do know in Calypso that the main character seemed to be fighting that era's form of the Federation, as if the Federation were the bad guys. And that does not yet seem to be the case in the era that Discovery has found itself in. Yeah, there are some. And maybe we'll never get answers to that. I mean, so far in the future, even further yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're right. And I mean, it leads up to possibility, but it's just so far flung in the future. It's hard to really uh, judge where that's going or coming from. Mm-hmm. I mean, I suspect it'll tie in eventually. And again, they're playing the long game, so it might be another season or two. As we just mentioned on last week's Transporter Lock, they have been confirmed for season four of Discovery. So maybe they are like, oh, you know what? We have time to play out this plot. Let's let's not rush it. Yeah, I of that. <laughs> kind of like, hey, if they can go from episode one season one of star trek next generation to the series finale and have it be the same plot of the human of humanity being on trial why not take a little bit longer than that to play out a discovery plot i'm i'm here for it let's see well and you know they've kind of like dangled this like also sort of tantalizing bit in the first episode in last week's episode about like there are other federation ships out there Mm mm-hmm yeah. Um, not very many, but there are a few. I'm really looking forward to finding out what Burnham has been up to for the last year, who she has met, what connections she's made, and what impact it's had on the Federation. Because if I know her, she's not going to let the current state of the Federation stand. She is going to do everything she can to bring it back and to realize that vision of the Federation that extends beyond just having dilithium. Right. There's one other big part of this episode I want to talk about, but before we move on, is there anything else we want to say about Burnham or Calypso before I go back? Uh, not for me. Okay. Because we cannot talk about this episode without acknowledging the wonderful, wonderful dialogue between Paul Stamets and Jet Reno. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Like, just give me, like, I want outtakes. I want short treks of them just bickering. <laughs> like, they're, like, my favorite odd couple. Uh, the gays, you know, just bickering with each other. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, like, just give me, like, Jet Reno and uh, and Stamets just, like, having to, like, work in the same lab and just be at each other's throats all the time. Just give that to me. It's so interesting because in the first season, Paul Stamets was the obnoxious, brash character and nobody liked it or knew how to put up with it except maybe for Colbert. And then we bring in Reno and she's just like, does not give a crap. Uh, nothing like water off a duck's back. Anything Stamets says just rolls right off her and she dishes it right back. And Stamets is so unaccustomed to that. He has no idea what to do with it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> she's the McCoy of the show and I love it. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. If we like inject it directly into my veins. <laughs> if we hadn't had that first season of Stamets being hard as nails, then we wouldn't be so amused at him being so flat footed or caught wrong footed in this season. And I love that juxtaposition, that transition. Uh, yeah, like he was so totally intimidating because he was the expert on this, like this amazing technology that um you know the 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 spore drive right and he you know understood how it worked and was like is this brilliant engineer and like tilly was terrified of him and then um yeah like watching watching jet reno just completely like she's so unimpressed Mm -hmm. like i just (laughs) like i love it like it's it's so great and i mean and i love the stamets character like i think um like i always have a good time when when he's on screen but um like part of it is just watching him get taken down like the many pegs that he needs to be taken down. Um, I am so here for it. And one of the reasons for that is because we've seen so many opportunities for him to be vulnerable just in the last season. Like in in season one, his partner is murdered in season two. He's impaled with a seven inch piece of shrapnel, you know, and in season three, now he's dealing with the physical recovery as well as, having his partner back. I loved that just one small moment he had with Culber where he says, it's good to have you back. You know, and he's not talking about mm-hmm. the fact that Culber was dead. He's talking about the fact that Culber wanted to leave Stamets entirely. And it took him a while to come around and realize just what it was he was going to give up. Yeah. I think that uh, relationship over season two really played out beautifully. And, um, and like you said, it did give Stamets some really great moments of vulnerability and really kind of humanized him after season one, which is important, right? Like if he were, if he were still season one Stamets, he'd be very boring. Yes. Absolutely. And Anthony Rapp does the sad puppy face really well. (laughs) (laughs) I was very impressed that he was able to repair the discovery because not just that he was able to pull through the pain and get that part replaced but also that discovery crash landed we don't see that happen very often and when it does happen the ships don't always get back up but apparently they were able to affect the minor not minor but the bare minimum of repairs to get that ship flying again and that was not something i expected i kind of thought they might be stranded there in which case it really wouldn't be a good name for a show discovery if discovery is destroyed (laughs) in the second episode yeah, the ship has plot armor. <laughs> yep. That's why it doesn't take any damage when it hits the ground. I've never heard that phrase before. That's amazing. Oh, really? You've never heard the phrase uh, plot no. armor before? Yeah. Like, oh, it's a very big in D&D. I love it. Yeah, it can't it, it can't die because you can't <laughs> because you can't go on without it. Though it would be interesting to see as they get farther into the season, right? Cuz Discovery's an antique. And not just like a little bit, right? Like Discovery is a thousand years out of date. And so it would be interesting to see what would happen. Um, do do they continue on with this discovery and maybe just sort of piecemeal upgrade it as they go? Or do they end up having to scuttle this discovery and like find some 33rd century ship that they christen the discovery? Like, is that going to, is, is this discovery going to continue to be our discovery or is there going to be like the discovery B? Well, you know, it's kind of like just because a new iPhone came out doesn't mean you need to upgrade if the current iPhone is serving your purposes. The only reason they would need right. to scuttle this ship and get a new one is if they needed to be competitive with the other ships they are encountering. Right. You know, like like the original Enterprise NX-01 didn't even have shields. They polarized the hull. 
And so if you were to take that enterprise and drop them into, say, TNG era, the Klingons and Romulans would make short work of them. So in that case, yeah, they would need to upgrade. So it'd be interesting to see how that goes, especially because Discovery is, I mean, Discovery flies. That doesn't mean Discovery is repaired. True. Right? So um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens like with the, the physical ship. And as an Apple II user in the year 2020, I can tell you that finding parts for old computers is not easy. <laughs> Although now that they have programmable yeah, like matter, who knows? It's not just like it's it's not just one or two generations behind, right? Like it's an entire thousand <laughs> years behind. Like, can you imagine trying to repair thousand year old technology right now? I, like that's the level of difference we're talking I about. I mean, what 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 would be a thousand year old technology? What were they using in the year ten twenty? I was say actually, in ten, you know, technology from ten twenty may not be that difficult to uh, right. Like, yeah. oh no, my bow and arrow is broken. I think we can <laughs> fix that. Here's a crossbow. <laughs> uh, you know, I I didn't think it possible, but never mentioned that maybe a new ship like that would give a reason to have a uh, calypso happen if they had to get off Discovery for a reason and go pick it up later. Although we know that the sphere data cannot be extracted from Discovery, so I don't think they can scuttle the ship. Not only will it not allow itself to be scuttled, but they can't risk that data falling into the wrong hands. Well, so this was my question as we were watching the the recap. I was like, why didn't they just like destroy Discovery? They tried. They did. You're right. They did. I forgot. They, tr- they, they had tried to destroy Discovery. They tried the self-destruct and it turned itself off. They launched torpedoes at it. It raised the shields. You know, they couldn't tell the ship, and not that this happened in the episode, to pilot itself into the sun because the ship would reject that order. So Discovery now has a sense of self-preservation. I'd, or it will. Yeah, I don't know or I don't of. know if it's sentient, but it is making decisions that will not allow itself to be destroyed. And that might lead to Calypso. Right. Like I mean, I think I even mentioned it back then. Like for whatever reason, maybe they have to park it here for a while, and then come back and get it in the future. Yeah, because I believe the discovery was told to wait there until the crew returned, and we don't know how long I've been waiting or where the crew went. But there is some sense that it had a crew and it will have a crew, but in this period, it does not. I mean, I think one of the theories we floated in a previous episode of Transporter Lock was that kind of like Robo in the video game Chrono Trigger, they send the ship back a thousand years so that the as far as the humans are perceiving time, they are without their ship for like a minute. But then the ship itself has had a thousand years of evolution because they're like, we need this AI today and it's going to take a thousand years to evolve it. So let's have that thousand years be in the past instead of the future, so that we're ready for it. Oh. Hmm. Could be. Who knows? Yeah, right. so interesting. <laughs> Are there any other minor aspects of this episode that we want to talk about? Uh, Tilly also had a moment where she was just, you know, just being herself. We kind of brushed on it, but I loved her de-escalating the situation in the saloon. <laughs> um, the crash landing on the planet of Discovery was very reminiscent of Timeless episode of Voyager, where the crash line onto an icy planet. Yeah, it seems that both Discovery and Burnham did not come out of that wormhole very well. They both crashed. <laughs> um. Uh. Also, I loved. Oh no, no. Um. 
I could very much commiserate with Discovery getting stuck in the ice and mud in North Dakota. <laughs> uh, all I could picture was me getting my tires go back and forth and back and forth. Come on, come on. Although sometimes you have <laughs> milder winters than Boston, Massachusetts, where I'm from. Yeah, it happens. Uh-huh. Can we talk for a second about, go back to a second for, to parasitic ice? Yes. Because like, that phrase, just that phrase is so terrifying, right? <laughs> like, because, you know, you encounter all kinds of, like, on Trek, you encounter all kinds of interesting, like, wonders, right, every week, right? And so so the writers have to come up with new things all the time, right? And then, but for this, they came up with parasitic ice. And I'm like, is this, like, a throwaway monster where you, like, where we encounter it just on this one planet and then never again? Or is this, like, a thing that's going to come back and haunt our nightmares? And I'm not sure which one I'd rather it be. It reminded me a lot of Ice Nine from the book Cat's Cradle. Are you familiar with that book? No. So in this book, they the army says, well, our troops are always getting bogged down in mud. We want a way to solidify the mud so that they can just walk right over it. So the scientist comes up with a particle that, when added to mud, solidifies it. But it does it in a chain reaction. So you touch it to any part of the mud and it spreads out to all the mud but then it turns out that that happens to any liquid so like you drop it in a pool of water and it solidifies the entire pool of water and spoiler at the at the end of the episode somebody drops it into the ocean oh no and so the the entire planet's oceans which are all connected all freeze and one person you know just purposely does not want to live in this world so that she touches it to her tongue and all the liquid in her body freezes. That's where I thought it was going. Yeah. Uh, As a weapon. (sighs) I mean, it's not weaponized in the episode in the book, but yeah, the end is basically. Yeah, but give humans something like that for 15 minutes and and they'll figure it out. Right. (laughs) Right. So I, when uh, the bad guy in this episode says he, that he saw parasitic ice enter into somebody's throat. That's specifically what I thought of was ice nine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah it was oh it was terrifying yeah. like uh, how do you make ice a character like an intimidating character to show make it parasitic well and give the give the ice like a will right well i i yeah. googled parasitic ice and i excluded the word discovery from my search results and apparently the x-files had a creature called a parasitic ice worm Interesting. yeah i never watched x-files but there's a screenshot here of them just sitting in jars. They captured these two parasitic ice worms, and they're just little specimens there. Ugh. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> great! Uh, uh, my final notes that I really want to touch on. They had some really great cinematography here, or whatever. If there's a TV equivalent of that, where like at the beginning we show Paul all alone in the sick bay, and then Hugh walks up to him, and the camera pans away from a different direction. It comes back, and, it, and then it shows the chaos what's actually going on there i just love that moment of those two alone literally and figuratively at the same time i thought it was really well done wait i'm sorry are you you talking about the moment where they bring paul out of the coma yeah early on like as the as a way to show like paul returning to to consciousness yeah it's really beautiful yeah because there have been many times in my life where i am coming out of general anesthesia and that is what it's like that is very accurate i thought it was so well done i loved that uh, however, um, I did have to admire Stamets for wanting to get back to work and for recognizing <laughs> that, that was necessary, even while coming out of the coma, because when I'm coming out of general anesthesia, I just want to sleep and I don't care what else is going on around me. Like 
I'm so selfish that the most important thing to me is that everybody else just be quiet so I can go back to sleep. <laughs> and here was Stamets coming out of what we saw was a very peaceful rest into the chaos of the crash landing. And instead of wanting to go back to sleep, he wants to go back to work. He is such a dedicated engineer. Even if he can be a jerk, he loves his ship and his crew. And I I appreciated um, their like the sort of couple bickering about between him and <laughs> Culber. I'm like, okay, well you can get up when you can spell. <laughs> like that, and then he does it. But he forgets the hyphen. <laughs> it takes, but it took him like twenty. But it took him ten minutes. <laughs> I loved it. I just loved every bit about it. And I just love Culber saying, "I need you well, so I can kill you." <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Oh, they're they're a great couple. I love them. They're they're they so are. cute, and I love them, and I'm so glad because there was at the end of season one there was a lot of concern about like the barrier gaze trope, mm-hmm. right? And so I was I was extremely gratified that they brought Wilson Cruz back, and uh, and so now whenever somebody I know is like starting the show over and they're watching they're they're starting it for the first time and they're watching through season one, and I always know when they get to like when they get to Culber's death, and I'm like, okay, just. I hear you, but wait for it. Mm-hmm. Like, just wait for it. Um, because because they, these two really do have such a beautiful story. Yeah. And neither Culber nor uh, Jet Reno were in the very first few episodes. Like, they were not on the radar. Of course, Reno wasn't introduced till season two at all. But if you look at that dynamic at the beginning of the series compared to now, they're so... It's so different. There are so many different characters. There's so many different interactions. And that brings out so many different sides of the characters we did know in season one. And I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, another great shot cinematically was when Commander Nan is talking to Philippa. Uh, when they're all, when Saru and Tilly are gone, they're talking. I just love that they're just walking down the corridor, they get in a turbo lift, and then they walk off the turbo lift a different deck uh, to the Linus flirting scene. But they did that with no cuts or an invisible cut. And I thought that was just really cool. That occurred to me as well. Like when they come out of the turbo lift, I'm wondering, was there some CGI magic there? Or were they like, I've I've done theater. I know how quickly you can move sets around. And I'm wondering when they close those doors on the turbo lift, what did they have to move on the other side of those doors to make it look like a different deck when they reopened? Because that would have been neat to see. Uh, yeah, it was really cool. I think that's not the first time they've done it in Discovery. Now that I'm talking about it, I'll sing it out loud. I think they've done it before, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, still cool. And the last thing we've already touched on it was just the space saloon that was really well done. And I loved, you know, especially the trope part where when the bad guys here, you focus on their boots underneath the saloon door first. <laughs> you always do that, and they did it here too. And I thought it was just wonderful. Yeah, you know, for some reason, as they were penning up to show his face, I was wondering if they were trying to build some dramatic tension where like we're going to recognize him like oh my god harry mud what are you doing here and then i'm like and then they show his face and i'm wondering wait are we are we supposed to know him because he doesn't look familiar to me and the answer is no he's he's completely new but oh man i was trying to figure it out in fact you know what i probably should have gone on memory alpha and tried to figure out if that actor has been in some star trek before no no (laughs) He's just been on Vikings and other other okay. stuff, but no. So. Well, like, but he's coming back. Well, you know, I was just reading the Picard novel, and it's talking about the Romulan uh, refugee movement away from the solar supernova. 
And it made me remember, what about that Romulan that was running the cloaking device on Deep Space Nine? And I was like, whatever happened to her? And I looked her up in Memory Alpha, and that actor later played Seska on Voyager. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like I okay, you two knew that. I if I ever knew it, I forgot because I was like, oh my gosh! So she played a Cardassian, a Romulan, and a Bajoran. That's amazing. Well, like you know, that era track loved like recycling actors. Yes. Like uh, we just watched um, in our TNG rewatch, we just watched Times Arrow. Uh huh. And uh, which is you know a great couple of episodes, and. But when Data first arrives in San Francisco, right, he has to go like win a bunch of money in a poker game, so he has currency. Yeah. And the the poker player who speaks French. To oh, him, oh, oh! Don't tell me! Don't tell me! It's Gold Ducat. Yes, but he had also previously played a different Cardassian. Oh, yep. Oh, that. Yes. Interesting. Oh, that's right. Um, and so, but what you know him from, like the because the voice is very familiar to you, right? As soon as he starts talking, you're like, oh, it's Gold Ducat. <laughs> That's right, because in the DS9 novels, they brought back the Cardassian he previously played on TNG, and he's like, oh yeah, Gold Ducat, that's my brother. Uh, that's my cousin. My cousin. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I know the resemblance is uncanny, but he was the jerk, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if it's not D- Gold Ducat, then it's probably Jeffrey Coombs, because he played, he played yep. everybody. So. Cool. Anything else? Uh, God, we're getting so long, but uh, Kristen Byer, yep. Byers, uh, who wrote this, she's all over this with the programmable programmable matter. Uh, in the her version of the relaunch novels, uh, uh, the Borg attack Federation again. Uh, everyone's saved by the Kaliar, and they have these catoms, basically mm-hmm. the equivalent of programmable programmable matter. So like, I think she just borrowed something from her books and put it here, which I thought was cool. Interesting. Yeah, she's written a couple of episodes before. Uh, she wrote two episodes of Discovery. She wrote The Children of Mars, Short Trek. And she wrote two episodes of Star Trek Picard, Remembrance and Stardust City Rag. So not only has she written novels and comic books in the Star Trek universe, but she's no stranger to Discovery as well. Although when I saw The Programmable Matter, I thought of 3D printing. And specifically, there is a 3D printer that takes the form factor of a pen where basically you can write on a piece of paper, but then you can also lift it off the paper and the ink comes with mm-hmm. you. So you can basically write in three dimensions. It's called the three doodler. Oh, it's wow. on Kickstarter. Uh, a friend of mine who was at the cutting edge of 3d printers like 10 years ago, basically called it the worst 3d printer ever. <laughs> <laughs> I think it has a lot of like, it's very impressive for people who don't use the technology to see it in action. But when you actually start using it, you're like, Oh, an actual 3d printer would do this so much better. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's what I was thinking of. Like you're basically holding a pen drawing in three dimensions and you end up with the piece that Tilly needed. I was just thinking about this, um, how it was kind of this weird intersection of the replicators and the holodeck. Like what, what does programmable mean for both of those technologies? Mm. And also, like, programmable matter almost sounds like a nanite to me. Which I can see how it's being used in Discovery is not a nanite, but it's a, you know, nanites are programmable and they are matter. <laughs> uh-huh. so. All right. Well, we are coming up on an hour and 
as always, we try to keep these podcasts longer than the episode we're talking about. <laughs> Tiffany, it has been such a joy talking discovery with you. I know that uh, you know you and I met back in January in your home, and before that, we met at WordCamp US. Because what we forgot to mention is that surprise, you and I are coworkers. We are indeed. That's right. And we don't get to work as closely as I would like, but we are always in the same Slack channel. And you're always there for me to bother anytime I want. (sighs) No bother. (laughs) I love getting pings from you. Oh, you're too kind. Thank you. This was super fun. Remind us where we can find you online, Tiffany. Uh, You can find me at my Twitter account. My Twitter handle is Tiffany. It's just my name. I've been on Twitter for a really long time. I was just going to say, you had to be an early adopter to get that handle. Yeah, I beat um, the pop singer and the jewelry store. <laughs> Did they ever try to buy it off you? So, you know, somebody representing himself as someone acquainted with the pop singer did try to get me to give up my handle. Um, I was, I, I declined, but um, but no, the, the jewelry store has not ever approached me. Um, though, you know, I would, uh, I would entertain an offer at this point. <laughs> so I'm not asking for numbers, but this person associated with the singer, did they... You said they tried to get you to give up the handle. Was there? They they offered to barter a benefit concert for the charity of my choice. Ah. Oh, how interesting! A benefit concert in 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 my town. So I live in Washington D.C. for the charity of my choice. Like, and then I was like, you know what? No, <laughs> just give the money. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because a, a concert, depending on how much they throw behind it could be a relatively small affair in some coffee shop or it could be a huge sold out stadium. And uh, well, and that was my thing. I was like, it is the, the eighties pop singer, Tiffany, that big of a draw in Washington, DC <laughs> in at the time, I think 2015 that, that this would be like a worthy, uh, a worthy thing. And I was like, no, I don't think that it would be no shade to, t- to my namesake, but no, no. Uh, I just decided that it probably wasn't going to be, it wasn't going to be, what I wanted. Well, it looks like she landed on Twitter anyway. I see she joined in June of 2009 with the handle Tiffany Tunes. Uh, and Indeed. she has a Patreon. <laughs> How about that? I I, yes. I did not expect that. I Hey, you know, everybody's uh, the res- residuals run out eventually. But she has only 22 <laughs> backers. That's not going to be enough to put on a charity concert. I think she's alone now. Ah! Ooh. Zing. <laughs> Okay. Well, Tiffany from twitter.com slash Tiffany, first officer Tiffany of an unknown transport ship. Thank you so much for your time. It's been such a joy chatting Discovery with you. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much. Until next time. Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com.